0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. You have your Bible, please open it to Peter's first letter. First Peter will be in chapter one. Last week we began our, our study of First Peter, which will last until the middle of November. We saw the first 13 verses as an introduction to the book. And really, that set up our theme of elect exiles. It's what Peter calls the Christians there to whom he's writing. You see that in verse 1 through 3. To those who are chosen or elect exiles. And by that he means, Christians have been chosen by God and called by God to live in a world that is not their home. What it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been saved by the wrath of God from from the wrath of God by Christ's toning death, and you've received grace of the gospel and believed it by faith. You're a Christian, praise God, and that means that you are now no longer of this world. You don't belong to this world. Your citizenship may be here, and your family and friends and Co-workers may all be here, but as a Christian, you belong to a different kingdom. That is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's right, and it's appropriate, and it's, it's wholly accurate for Peter to call Christians exiles, or strangers, or sojourners, because we need to recognize that this world is not our home. It's where we travel for some time but the Lord is sustaining us, keeping us for a greater privilege. That's what he calls that we've been born again in verse three to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Go on to tell us that that living hope is manifest in the second coming of Christ when Jesus once again returns. Look in verse 13. As elect exiles, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as exiles chosen by God, we are to set our hope on the promises of God fulfilled in Christ and the future promises of God that will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. So to be born again to a living hope as Christians means to have hope that not only is this world not our home, but that a greater and future home awaits us when Christ returns. That we know not the hour or the day, we can be certain that Jesus will return. And that is our hope, our blessed hope, as Peter will call it. So we take from last week and we build on that. In fact, one of the things we'll do throughout the the series of 1 Peter is see how we live in a world As Christian Exiles, you'll notice if you have or you have grabbed a schedule there where you got your worship guides, the titles or the themes of the sermons are next to them. You take a quick glance, you'll see that they're intentionally titled, How Christians Are to Live as Exiles. Last week, we saw the idea that we are exiles. This week in our passage, we learned that we are to live as Christian exiles, as obedient children, as newborn babes. We understand ourselves to be living stones, strangers and aliens, that we are fellow heirs, righteous sufferers. We're called to be faithful stewards. We are blessed Christians. Some of us are called to be humble shepherds. And as a church of elect exiles, we are to be a watchful community. I hope that you see the theme that will emerge in 1 Peter over the next month or two that we are called to live particularly in this world. That is, we're, we're called to be strangers because we are strange, because we've been called, we belong to God and his kingdom and not of this world. So that's, that's the theme of the entire letter. We've been born again to a living hope that makes us strangers, aliens, exiles in this world. And that living hope In our passage this morning, we see will lead us then to a reverent obedience to God. If we have a living hope as Christians, we then are led to reverently obey Him as our God and Father, who is judge over all things. That is, the main idea, if you're taking notes, is this, obedient children live for the lasting glory of their Father by submitting themselves to His enduring word. Obedient children live for the lasting glory of their father by submitting themselves to his enduring word. Let's turn our attention beginning in verse 13 through the end of chapter 1, and we'll see, I believe, how that's true. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory Like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Just for context, let's read the first three verses of chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin our study of your word this morning, would you help our hearts to be softened and open to receive it? That happens not through intellect, but through the work of your spirit on us. Would you now move among our hearts and our eyes, our ears, our minds, to be ready to receive the truth that you have in your word? that indeed it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts directly through meat to marrow, that it teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, admonishes us, encourages us, and leads us. Help me, Father, as I speak of what these words mean, that I would do so faithfully, and that all those who would hear these words would believe their truthfulness, and in believing be saved, be encouraged, Sustained. Help us to be obedient children as Peter commands. Help us to be holy as you command. None are our own works, but of the righteousness provided to us and for us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Obedient children live for the lasting glory of their Father by submitting themselves. To His enduring word. If we take a step back and we look at the passage here, verse thirteen through twenty-five of chapter one, we see a pattern emerge, a framework, or a structure emerge that will provide for us the theological backdrop for the obedience we're called to as God's chosen and elect exiles. We see clearly the call for obedience. But with discerning eyes, we see Peter lay out the framework for that obedience. Namely, there's a theological impetus or, or undergirding of this passage that teaches us about God Himself that will help us inform us as obedient children. Our obedience, in other words, is to be firmly rooted in the very nature of God Himself. When we understand God, His holiness, In his character, we come to understand our nature and our need as children of God and what that obedience then must entail and look like as we're faithful to our Father. So the first thing I want you to see in verses 14 through 16 is the Father's character. It's important to begin to see God here first and primarily in our passages rather than us because that will form the lens by which we understand our work and our duties Verses 14 through 16, we see the Father's character. His character, of course, is holy. Now, holiness can be said to be an attribute of God. We speak of God as being holy. But really, strictly speaking, holiness is not a single attribute of God. It actually is the perfection of all of God's attributes. That is, He's perfect in goodness, perfect in love, perfect in righteousness, perfect in majesty, all of who God is in his glory is holy, righteous, distinct. So when we speak of God's character as being holy, we need to first understand it in the sense of his, here's a word, transcendence. Really what that means is God is distinct from his creation in a unique way. We have lots of distinctions in our lives parents, from children, wives, from husbands, bosses, from employees, and so on and so on. Well, God, on an infinite scale, is distinct, transcendent over his creation. He is not a part of his creation. And so he is said to be transcendent. So when the father says that he is holy, he means to say that he is transcendent over creation. He is distinct from it, and therefore unstained by the sin and imperfections that now mar creation. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 puts it this way, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. The language here is that God is above, distinct. He is transcendent. But there's another sense of God's holiness we need to understand too from the passage that will inform our obedience and his call for us to be holy as he is holy. Not only is God transcendently holy, but he is also, also ethically holy. That is, he has within himself moral perfection. You know what I mean by that? It means that he is right all the time. His ways are perfect. There is no sin blemish, darkness, unrighteousness at all in him. He cannot sin. It would go against his very nature to sin. He is morally perfect. When we speak of God's goodness, we speak in tandem of his perfection, of his righteousness, of his moral perfection, his holiness. So the, the, the prophet Habakkuk would say in chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of God, that he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The idea is God is so perfectly morally pure that he cannot even look on sin, that he might be stained from it. That is, of course, just a euphemism to say that he cannot be stained or blemished by sin. Certainly, it means he looks out over sin and will judge it, but he is not complacent with it, and is not participant with it. So the first aspect of God's sort of character that we need to understand from the passage is that he is holy. And then in verses 17 through 19, we see the Father's authority laid out. The Father's authority. There Peter says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, throughout the time of your exile. Here he says clearly that God is judge. He has authority over this world. Why? Because he created the world. It is his. He formed it. He is creator. This speaks, of course, to his transcendence. He's over the world which he has created himself. We know, of course, that all three members or persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. But here we speak together of the triune God, having created the world, now stands transcendently over it with authority. He has authority to judge, He has authority to command, He has authority to save, and He alone has authority. You or I, no matter what power may accumulate in this life, will never have the kind of authority God has to do whatever he likes in this world. The scripture says, our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. That's the authority of God. Not only because he's creator, but because he is holy. So both his holiness and his power as creator gives him the unique authority as judge over all things. So the Father's character is holy and he has authority as a judge. Thirdly, in verses 20 through 21, notice that we see also the Father's Son who is our Redeemer. It says in verse 20 that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him Glory so that your hope and your faith are in him. What was the manifestation of Jesus meant to accomplish? It was this in verse 18, your ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're talking about the father's son who is to be our redeemer, our rescuer, our Deliverer. The Apostle Paul will put it this way in Romans chapter 3, in verse 23 through 26. You're familiar with the first part, of course. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, that is, made and declared to be righteous. We are righteous by His grace as a gift through, that is, the means by which this gift comes to us, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, another word, a propitiation by his blood. That means that Jesus turned God's wrath from us by taking it on himself. He satisfied God's wrath against sin, our sin, and therefore against us. So God put forward, it says, Jesus as a propitiation, as a wrath satisfier by his blood, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, an aspect of his holiness, because in his divine forbearance, his patience, and his long-suffering, he had passed over former sins. Peter would call that the the former ignorance of our ways. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, the framework being developed by, by Peter that undergirds the call to obedience, which we haven't even explored yet, begins with the Father's character as holy and the Father's authority as judge, leads us to the Father's Son as Redeemer, and lastly, in verses 22 through 25, to the Father's Word, which is enduring. What does he say? Having purified your souls by your obedience, this is verse 22, to truth. For sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure, pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And here he quotes from Isaiah, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass, which withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Your, your translation may say the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word is enduring it is living, it says, verse 23, and abiding. It does not fail or fall. It does not rust or fall apart. It is living and abiding. And then at the end of verse 25, Peter says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So God's word, the Father's word, comes to us as a living word that is meant to sustain us to cause us to abide. In fact, Jesus will say that if you are my disciples, you will abide in me. What it means to abide means to trust and know in God's living and abiding word. So this framework that really undergirds our understanding of obedience begins with the Father, not with us. And that's an important shift to make. Most of us come to the Bible with us in the center of it. And that's natural and understandable. In fact, this letter is written to people, not written to God. And so you need to ask the question what has this to do with me? But we need to have the habit formed in our lives that when we read Scripture, we read it first what does this teach me about God? And then who am I in light of that? What do I do because of this? That's important. The Father's character, His authority, His Son, and His Word form the framework or the theological backdrop by which we are to understand now our obedience. And it's his character here, the backdrop of his character, where we see the nature of our own character emerge. The shape of our own obedience then is formed in the backdrop of God's character. We're going to see this firstly negatively. That is, who we no longer are and what we no longer do. And then we're going to see it positively. That is, who we now are and what we now must do. Those are two poles by which Peter now is teaching, who we no longer are, negatively speaking, who we no longer are and what we no longer do, and then positively, who we now are is in Christ and what we now must do in obedience. And so we're going to take each in turn here, and I want us to see this, that as we live, when we live, as obedient children, whose hope, verse 13, is fixed on Christ, we will do, Two things. First, negatively, when we live as obedient children, we will no longer be conformed to evil desires. This is what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. That is, you you once lived, Ephesians 2, in the passions of your flesh. You may mark yourself off as a good, law-abiding citizen, as a morally good person. You've not gotten into much trouble throughout your life, or maybe you have, but compared to the next guy, you're not nearly as bad. And so you think of yourself, I'm okay. But the Bible tells us that none of us are okay. All of us are sinners. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I teach my children the catechism, I say, who has sinned? The correct answer is that she must at she must answer is all. I make sure that she knows that she's included there, but the answer is all of us. Of course, the question next to ask is, has Jesus sinned? No, for he was perfect in all things. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, pursuing, following the prince of the power of the air, living, following, entertaining, gratifying the lusts of our flesh. In fact, he would call us children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we all were. For some of us, that's who you still are. You are to be no longer conformed to evil desires as a Christian, though. That is, you must not only reject this, but turn away from it and accept a new way of living. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, positively, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Do not be conformed to evil desires. Friends, that means for us as Christians, we are to reject the hedonistic, morally bankrupt worldview that our culture sells us. More than that, we need to reject the more subtle forms of hedonism, such as our Western, Americanized sense of individuality, financial success, Power, stability, comfort above all things. That sets the individual as the center of the universe and our whole end in life is to make ourselves happy and rich and comfortable. But we actually need to reject that. For the chief end of man, as the confession puts it, is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Which really says nothing of earthly comforts, of earthly security, but all about our security and comfort in him. So Peter says, as obedient children, living in this world as elect exiles, you are to no longer be conformed to evil desires, particularly those in which you once walked, your old way of life. Now friends, sometimes when we become a Christian, we're able to move very quickly and separate ourselves from our way of living. Maybe that's your testimony as well, if you're a Christian this morning. You were deep in sin, mired in it, and the Lord saved you, and all of a sudden, you no longer had a taste for that sin, whether it was a particular addiction or way of living. Maybe you went out partying every night, and the Lord saved you, and now you don't want to do that. Maybe it was a particular fixation on success, wealth, accumulation, power. Maybe it was your relationship and how you saw yourselves in the eyes of other people and what they thought of you as most important. But when the Lord saves you, that changed. And you were able to see those things as silly and trite and worldly. And it was easy for you to say, God is my God. Christ is my Lord. He is my comfort. He is my joy. I live for him. But there are some besetting sins which are not so easily unentangled. The writer of Hebrews knows this. It was why he encourages us in chapter 12 of that letter to set aside to throw off every weight that snares us and hinders us from running the race. Peter here says you've lived a particular way and you need to continue to fight to cut the anchor of those sins from your life. You made much progress. God has saved you and you should give him glory for that. But there are some sins which hang around our neck that are not so easily undone. Perhaps the jealousy of a neighbor or a friend continues to creep into your conversations or to your perspective on their blessing. Maybe it's the desire to have a husband or a wife that the Lord seems to not give you at the moment. Maybe it's the failure to live the way that you had planned, your goals, your job. Maybe it's the difficulty of children or the difficulty of your marriage or simply strained relationships in your life because of this. And sin finds its way, keeps its way, wraps its tentacles into your life And you find yourself often battling with it, sometimes for months and years. But friends, Peter calls those who are Christians to not be conformed by those kinds of passions and sins, which characterize the way we once lived, but rather to lean in and fight to walk in the way that we have now been called to live, indeed, in the way that we now are. Christ, in his blood, in his death and resurrection, purifies us, cleanses us from sin. Justification means we're declared to be righteous, which means before God, we are accepted as righteous and holy because of Christ, which means we are to now live in accordance to that declaration. You've been justified. Now we must be sanctified. So he says, do not be conformed to evil desires. Don't don't fall back into the temptation to believe the morally bankrupt ways of the world. The life has been all about you, but rather, he says, exercise self-control. Not self-indulgence, self-control. That's the negative aspect. And then he says positively, again in verse 15, be holy as he who called you is holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The holiness of God has been written in stone. It's what the Old Testament is trying to teach God's people over and over again. God is holy, believe him, trust him, follow him, obey him, and your way will be right. But because God is holy, disobedience brings wrath, brings judgment, it brings punishment. Israel knew better than anyone about the wrath of God that would be delivered against them if they sinned, if they rejected the holiness of God and the holiness of God's ways. Friends, it's no different today. God commands us here in this text to be holy for just as he is holy. We are to positively then pursue holiness. Not only negatively reject the hedonistic morally bankrupt worldview not only no longer being conformed to evil desires, but positively to pursue it. Now, before we ask how we do that, it's actually important to ask why we should do this. Because Peter is keen here on connecting the, the, some more words for you, the indicatives of the gospel with the imperatives of the gospel. Indicatives are things that are true. They're facts. They're things that are real. The imperatives, then, are things which are consequences of those facts. Does that make sense? The indicatives are the gospel. Jesus died, and ransomed you by his death. It's an indicative. It's true. It's a fact. It's real. The imperative, then, answers the question, as Francis Schaeffer once asked it, how shall we then live? Or in modern parlance, so what? What do we do? So Peter here is taking the indicatives of the gospel and connecting them to the imperatives of faith. Because this is true, live this way. And we see this actually all throughout this letter. We'll notice that because of a certain thing that God has done or Christ has done, we are to do this thing. So keep an eye out for that over the next several months as we study the book. So we need to ask why? What are the indicatives that inform the imperatives? Well, I've got a few of them for you. First, in verse 17, because God is a holy judge. We saw this already as virtue of his authority. He is judge. He has the authority to judge, to punish, and also to pardon. God is a holy judge. He says there in verse 17, clearly, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Know that he is A judge, a righteous, holy, and impartial judge. And that there will be a day where he will judge each deed, each one of our deeds. Our thoughts, our words, and our actions will be held up and scrutinized by the standard that God decides. Well, who of us will stand under such scrutiny? God is a holy judge. But notice so the language of children and a father the relationship that peter is also keen to make clear here god is the judge and also our father we are to be obedient children to our father who is also our judge so when it says in verse 14 that we have inherited passions from our forefathers now we know is as our father now in heaven is replaced with holy passions because we are children of God. You see that change? We have been made new, born again, received a new life in Christ. Our forefathers gave us unholy passions and our God and Father gives us now holy passions. As we pass on traits to our own children, God in Christ passes on traits to us. So the passions inherited by our forefathers now are replaced with holy passions inherited from our Heavenly Father. Jesus will say this over and over again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Paul says it in Ephesians 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God as children. Paul again says it in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we will be imitators of God, who is our Father. And we should know that our children resemble us both physically and many times in personality. You may look at Tinley and know that she's my child because she looks a lot like me. But if you didn't see her, but you could observe her behavior, some of the things she says, you may also come to the conclusion that she's my daughter. In fact, one of the most startling things of becoming a parent is realizing just how much a mirror your children really are to you. Parents, of course, can amend that. It's a mirror, one we don't like to look in, but it exists nonetheless. That's because children are made at the likeness of their earthly parents. Children of God are to be conformed to the image of God himself. God is a judge who has authority to judge each one of us, but he has made us his children. He is also our father. What does this mean then? It means that this will lead to reverent fear and joyful submission to God. That's what it says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, reverence, honor throughout the time of your exile. So we have joyful submission and reverent fear to the Lord. And that, that fear and that joy means that we approach God as father, yes, but also honor him rightly as judge. The second imperative, or sorry, indicative, is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Continue on in verse 18. We see that we were ransomed from those futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with these perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus as of the blood of a lamb, holy and spotless. One of the reasons that we're called to obedience is not only because God is judge, but has made us his, uh, his children, but because he has done that through the ransoming work of Jesus, through the shedding of his blood. And we need to understand that this means by implication, before we've been saved by Jesus' work on the cross, we were in bondage to sin, slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves from sin. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses, it means dead. You were a corpse, unable to revive and restore yourself to life. Only, verse 4, it will say, will God make you alive in Christ. And so one of the reasons that we are called to be obedient and to be obedient children to God is because we've been ransomed from death. We've been ransomed from sin by the blood of Jesus. That which we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. Of course, that is to mean we've been liberated. We've been set free. Now, many of you in your former ignorance did not understand yourself to be captive to sin. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of not being a Christian, is you might not know that you're a sinner. It's one of the reasons when we preach the gospel and when we share and commend the gospel to others, we must include the fact that we are sinners. There is no good news unless we preach the bad news first. To be ransomed is to be liberated, and therefore we must live as ones who have been freed from the yoke of sin and slavery to our master, the enemy. John will tell us, the apostle John tells us that we were under the sway influence of the devil, but Christ frees us from the yoke and the bondage of slavery and sin. He becomes our master. We were now dead to God and alive to sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we were now dead to sin and alive to God because we've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. And so we must live as ones who've been freed. We must live as ones who have been liberated from sin and death. This means that we give ourselves to Christ. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we'd like. Will Paul will say in chapter six of the book of Romans, does that mean we can sin all the more so that grace can continue to abound and we can give glory to God for saving us despite our sins? He says, no. How can you who died to sin still live in it? But rather we are to present our members to Christ for his righteousness and for his glory. So because we've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, we obey God. We pursue holiness. And lastly, the third indicative of why we are called to holiness is because the new birth gives us or implants within us new and pure desires or loves, particularly love for God and love for others. We'll see it again in verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth that is believing the gospel for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Because we have been born again, we have been given a new heart. And with that new heart comes new desires and new affections. It means we love that which we'd never loved before and could not love before. Like God's law It was impossible for us to delight in and love, but with new hearts we can love it. And not only that, but we can now see as detestable and vile and evil things which we used to love, like our sin. Things like envy, gossip, pornography, and all the trappings of this world now become distasteful to us as Christians because we've been given a new set of loves, a new order of loves, This has been implanted in us by virtue of the new birth. Another way we can think about the new birth is what the theologians will call regeneration. That is, we've been given a new heart. It's been dead and it's been revived. It's been new. Or the Gospels will tell us that the the prophecy of Jeremiah has come true, that we have been given by God's grace a heart of flesh, which was once a heart of stone. The new birth gives us these new desires, and therefore, with these new desires, we can obey God. We can pursue holiness. We can love God, which we could never do before, and we can love sincerely others, which we could never do before. Though God gives common grace to all men, and we see acts of charity and love by believers and non-believers alike, there is a uh, a uniquely God-glorifying love that is born from a heart that has been new and transformed by the gospel for the sake of brothers that we must see and pursue in our own lives. In other words, it is the gospel that empowers moral change in our lives. It's the gospel that empowers moral change. And this change is rooted not in our outward religious performances, but in Christ, in Christ alone. This moral change affected to us by the gospel finds its root in its source in the gospel itself. In the gospel, which is a gift given to us, which we have already received in Christ and not as one we are trying to earn. You hear that? The moral activity, your righteousness, your obedience, your perseverance in the faith, your pursuit of holiness is not by means of earning righteousness, by earning grace, but as a response of having already received it in the gospel. That's the most important fact that you need to understand about what the gospel means for you, is that you no longer can try to earn what you never could, your grace, your salvation, your righteousness, which are filthy rags before a holy God, but because you have received it, you now walk in it. So we live as those freely, ones freed from the yoke and slavery of sin with new loves, new passions, and new desires. So friends, are you trying to change now? Are you, are you examining your life and seeing and thinking of all these ways which you have constantly failing in the Lord, failing to meet the standards of God's word? That's everyone in this room, by the way, and if you don't know, you're failing already in that. If you're trying to change, that's a good thing. The question then where are you looking for change? And how do you believe you will accomplish it? Well, the most important change, if you're a Christian, has already been given to you, the change of a new heart. And you've been given the spirit who dwells within you now to empower you to affect real change in your life. You will not find it in people. You will not find it in your work. You will not find it in money or your bank account. You will not find it in your own happiness or comfort in this life. You will only find it in Christ and Christ alone. So the indicatives of Our faith are that we have been judged, declared righteous by the impartial God who has become our father in Christ because we've been adopted by Jesus, by Jesus' blood, because we have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, and because by virtue of our new birth, we have new desires and motives to obey him. Now we can come to our question of how. How do we live as obedient children? This is the application portion of the sermon, if you're taking notes. How? I'll give four for you. First, you are to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. When he says, in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, it means to set yourself apart from the world. We will never achieve the transcendence that God has, for we are creatures, he is creator. But we need to, like God, separate ourselves as consecrated Marked off people. Do not be conformed, it says, to the passions. Or Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What does it mean to be conformed? What's the word mean there? Well, to be conformed means to be formed or shaped in the likeness of something. Like clay is modeled after somebody or something. So Peter here and, and Paul in and Romans chapter 8 verse 29 makes clear that it's the gospel then that gives shape to Christian's life. It says in 8:29 Romans for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we're not to be conformed to our passions and not to be conformed to the world. We are to be conformed to Christ. That is, we are to model our lives after Christ. We can do so because we've been empowered now by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of a new heart and a new birth, by God's grace. We conform ourselves to Christ. We pattern our lives after his humility, after his sacrifice, after his obedience, knowing that we've been covered fully by the blood of Jesus, even when we fail. But we are to set ourselves apart. We are to be distinct from the world. We are to be distinct from the world. We are to live as ones who are called. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why? I've been crucified with Christ. Because we've been united to Christ, we live differently. We're called Christians and therefore must resemble that by which we bear the name. Christian, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we are to set ourselves apart. Secondly, we are to practice brotherly love. We see that clearly there in verse 22 and 23. We've been purified by our obedience to the truth of the gospel for a sincere love, and therefore the imperative of that is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Now compare that with this verse from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He tells Timothy, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What's our aim? Our aim is love. Our aim is to love and serve others. Of course, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it means also that we then turn to our neighbors and we love them. We serve them, particularly those who are of the faith with us. Brotherly love and affection extended to all those in the household of God and beyond. We are to practice brotherly love. Love, Now, you will have several opportunities throughout this day, week, and month in your whole life to practice brotherly love. I just want to commend you to do that and do it well without hesitation. God has blessed you. He has gifted you so that you may then bless and gift others. Be set apart and practice brotherly love, but we're also to pursue holiness through God's word. This is three through God's word. There's a reason that Peter takes all of this and lands it, sets it on the word of God. He says, you've been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, which endures forever. And then in verse 25, which was preached to you, that good news. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So we are to pursue holiness through God's word, his eternal word. His imperishable word, because the Bible you hold in your hands is God's word, it doesn't fail, it doesn't flop, it doesn't err, it doesn't stray. It is always right, good, and perfect, and it will never fade. Yes, the ink on your page might fade, but the word of truth will not. Therefore, we must prioritize eternal matters. If the word of God is eternal, we must prioritize eternal matters. It must take precedent in our lives. There's only one way to live righteously before the Lord. It's in obedience to his word. Now, we may not have all the precepts and commands Israel did on the old covenant, but it doesn't mean that we're without instruction or that we have license to live however we'd like. If you're a Christian, you should be looking in the Bible and ask the question, what do you want from me? And I will do it. We must obey and pursue holiness through God's word. You are not free or given license to define what holiness looks like. God has already defined it. He defines what our worship should be. He defines how our lives should look. And our lives ultimately would be a pleasing aroma to God. Why? Because we are obedient to his word. Scripture illuminates the path of righteousness on which the believer is to walk. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Scripture is meant to be the light, the guiding way for us to stay on the path of righteousness. If you close it, you turn off your light, you don't know where the, where the path is. You're going to step off the road. You'll step into a trap and a snare laid for you by the enemy. Friends, you have a light which will guide you in his word. Pick it up, read it, study it, know it, search it so that you may stay and not err from the path of righteousness. Lastly, you are to pursue holiness in faith. And in a day, you and I will fail, right? You and I will fall short, as we have and always will, the side of heaven. Therefore, we must pursue holiness in faith. We have believed this word, which is preached to us in verse 25 the gospel, the good news. We've believed it. It was preached to us, and now we take it, receive it, and say, Follow it. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 will, will lay out what it looks like to walk in faith and not by sight, according to God's word, which was promised and given to them. And so, by faith, we are justified. Not by our own works, lest we boast in ourselves. By faith, we are justified. That is, by faith, God declares us to be righteous and causes us no longer to be enemies, but children of God. By faith, we are justified. And by faith, we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ, whose death on the cross atones for sin. We're united to Christ, whose resurrection from the grave secures our victory. We are united to Christ, whose perfect obedience in life and in death provides for us righteousness, that is, his righteousness imputed to us as our own. We are united by faith to Christ, whose second coming gives us hope to live faithfully in this world as exiles, to pursue confidently holiness despite the challenges it may present to our lives and the persecution it may invite by others. The second coming gives us hope that our lives may be marked off as those who have been called, ransomed, set free, and given new life in Christ. If you've been born again, if the Spirit dwells within you, if you are by faith justified and united to Christ and have been clothed with His righteousness, which He has earned for you, which you could never earn yourself, then you can have confidence to live faithfully, to pursue holiness as an obedient children to the Father, because you have a new life in Christ. That's the calling here of Peter, because suffering will come as a cause of that. Difficulty, challenges will come. The promise of Peter here, the promise of the gospel, is that he who set you free will keep you and deliver you, even on the last day. That we long for the return of Jesus to make all of this suffering we may experience to not even be worth Compare it to the eternal weight of glory that comes at the return of Jesus. Set yourself apart. Practice brotherly love. Pursue holiness through God's word. And practice genuine saving faith by which you are justified and united to Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is active. It is living. And it speaks to us this morning. Would you guide us, even now, continue to guide us by your word as we sing and celebrate this good news which we've heard from your word as we participate in the Lord's Supper, which reminds us and is a tangible expression of the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, and his atonement, his sacrifice for us that we may be set free from the bondage of sin and death and the true liberation we have in Christ to pursue and walk faithfully. Not however we'd like, but how we ought. For you are holy, and you are good. You are our Father, and you have sent Christ to be for us an atonement for our sin. We love you, we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.